Hey guys, you're listening to Web of Wicked. We're a mother-daughter duo that bond over true crime. I'm Erin, I'm the mom. And I'm Kayla, I'm the daughter. On this podcast, we cover some sensitive topics, so listener discretion is advised. Hey everyone, welcome back to Web of Wicked. We're continuing our dive into the Long Island serial killer, Lisk, or the Gilgo Beach serial killer, whatever name you want to refer to him as. As most of you know, Rex Hewerman was arrested last week for the murders of three of the ten people whose remains were found spread along the seven-mile stretch of Ocean Parkway on Long Island. Four of the most recent murders that occurred between 2007 and 2010 were referred to as the Gilgo Four. Rex was arrested for three of those four women's murders on Thursday, July 13th. In our last episode, we talked about how Shannon Gilbert's disappearance led to the other ten bodies being found. We also discussed the six other people that were killed and dumped along Ocean Boulevard from as early as the mid-90s. Four of those six still don't have a name. There are families out there that may be wondering what happened to their family member all those years ago. Over the past week, I've really been thinking about all the victims and how their life circumstances led them to such an unfair fate, and it really upsets me. So now I want to turn our attention to the four victims that police believe Rex Heuerman is responsible for killing, and my mom's going to start. Hey everybody. First I want to talk about Maureen Brainerd Barnes. Her murder is the only one of the Gilgo Four that Rex Heuerman hasn't been charged for. In the indictment, they named him as the prime suspect in her murder. So that tells me that they pretty much know that he's her killer. She was the first of the Gilgo Four. The cell phone data from the burner phone used to contact her is missing. It no longer exists. And because of that, there wasn't enough evidence to link him to her murder. Yet. But the investigation is still ongoing so let's hope that he gets charged in her case soon. So let me tell you a little bit about Maureen. She was 25 years old and a tiny girl at just 4 foot 11. She was from our home state of Connecticut. She was a single mother with two young children. She had worked jobs as a cashier, a blackjack dealer, and also at a call center to support them. She hadn't been doing sex work long when she disappeared but she had turned to it out of financial necessity. Her routine was to travel to Manhattan for a few days to work and then return home to her apartment in Norwich to be with her kids. According to her sister, she was trying to get away from the sex work, but she received an eviction notice, so she had no choice but to head back to Manhattan. She would stay in different budget hotels in the Manhattan area, working out of the rooms. She advertised on Craigslist and Backpage under the aliases Juliana or Marie. Maureen tried to be safe. She always tried to partner with another girl, and the two of them often used a male that they referred to as their cousin for safety. On July 6, 2007, she took an Amtrak train from Connecticut into Grand Central Station and headed for her room at the Super 8 Motel. She worked the weekend, but business was slow. Her friend decided to go back to Connecticut. 
Maureen stayed behind to try to make more money to pay her rent. And then, outside of her hotel, Maureen was robbed. All the money that she had made that weekend was gone. Defeated, she decided to return home. But before she could get on the train, she received a call with an offer that she couldn't refuse. The last time that she was heard from was on a call to a friend in Connecticut at 11.43 p.m. on July 9, 2007. Breaking from her routine, she told the friend that she was going on an out call, where instead of doing business in the hotel, she would go out with the client. And this was more dangerous. And Maureen knew that. But desperate and not wanting her and her kids to be evicted, she decided to go. After that phone call ended, she was never seen or heard from again. On July 14, 2007, Maureen was reported missing to the Norwich Police Department by a friend. After pressure from her family, the NYPD would later take over the case. Not long after she went missing, a friend of Maureen's got a call from a man on an unfamiliar number. The man said that Maureen was staying at a, quote, whorehouse in Queens, and he claimed to have seen her, but he wouldn't identify himself and he wouldn't tell her where this house was. He said that he would call back to give her the address, but he never called again. Within a few weeks of her disappearance, her cell phone pinged near Fire Island. Maureen's body was found on December 13, 2010, beside Ocean Parkway near Gilgo Beach. She was found bound by three different belts, including one with the letters HM or WH embossed on it. She had been strangled. The next victim out of the Gilgo Four was Melissa Mary Bartholomew. Even though that she's the second of the Gilgo Four victims, she was the first to be found. She's the one that the dog Blue found during his training exercise. Melissa was only 4 feet 10 inches tall, 95 pounds, and 24 years old when she went missing on July 12, 2009. And she's described by family as being small but mighty. She wasn't afraid to stand up for herself or the people that she cared about. She was from upstate New York and after high school got her cosmetology license. Out of school, she worked at Supercuts but she longed to find work at a more prestigious company. So she moved to New York City hoping to get a break in the high-end beauty industry. But when reality hit, she turned to stripping to pay the bills. From there, she began escorting. She advertised under variations of the name Chloe on Adult Friend Finder as well as other sites. She lived with her boyfriend, John Blaze Terry who was also described as being her pimp, in a basement apartment in the Bronx. She had a tattoo of the boyfriend's name Blaze, and also the word focus on her back. She was last seen outside of her apartment. Sometime that day, she was recorded on camera at a bank, depositing $900 from money that she made working. Her boyfriend said that Melissa had an appointment to go out on a $1,000 date that night out on Long Island. She was never seen again. Her cell phone shows that she traveled from the Bronx to Manhattan, most likely in a taxi, which wouldn't be unusual for her. 
Her voicemail was later accessed from Massapequa, New York, over an hour from Manhattan. And now we know that that's where Rex Hureman lived. Melissa's family tried to report her missing right away after not hearing from her, but they were brushed off. Finally, on July 18th, a report was filed. As in all of these cases, the police always seemed to write off these girls as running away or disappearing on purpose. Her family was anxiously awaiting to hear from Melissa. So when her 15-year-old sister Amanda's phone rang and it was Melissa's number calling, she excitedly answered it. But instead of being Melissa, on the other end was the killer. He said terrible things to her, asking her if she was a whore like her sister. Over the next weeks, calls kept coming in. There were eight phone calls in all. On one, the killer asked her if she thought that she would ever see her sister again, constantly taunting but never staying on the line more than a minute or two. He seemed to understand staying connected longer could lead to being traced. The last call at the end of August ended with him telling her that he had killed and sexually assaulted her sister and that he was going to, quote, watch her rot. This guy is so cruel and sadistic. He really is a sadist. He obviously gets pleasure out of torturing and hurting people, whether it's physical or mental. He's a sick bastard. Yeah, with these phone calls, he's like taunting the family as if whatever he did to her wasn't enough. Yeah, and what's really messed up is Gilgo Beach is right across the bay from Massapequa Park where he lived. Yeah, the sicko probably got off on looking out across the water. He's the definition of a creep. I believe that. I believe that he did look across the bay and know that his trophy ground was there. Definitely. So these calls were all placed from crowded areas in New York City. The areas were canvassed immediately after the calls came in, but the Port Authority, Times Square, and Penn Station are extremely busy areas, and no leads came of it. Melissa's body was found on December 11, 2010, beside Ocean Parkway near Gilgo Beach. She was found wrapped in camouflage burlap, bound by clear or white tape, and had been strangled. Rex Hureman has been charged with her murder. Kale's going to go over the next two victims for you. So next we have Megan Amelia Waterman. Megan lived in Scarborough, Maine. She had a three-year-old daughter that she loved very much. But she had gotten mixed up with a rough crowd and was under the control of a boyfriend, or pimp, named Akeem Cruz at the time of her disappearance. She advertised on Craigslist and Backpage under the variations of the name Lexi. She was last seen by her family boarding a bus in Maine heading to New York. She would go back and forth, to New York to make money and back to Maine to be with her daughter, who stayed with family while she was away. Megan would stay at various budget hotels around Long Island while working. This time she was staying at the Holiday Inn Express in Hapog. Megan left her hotel at 1.30 a.m. on June 6, 2010 to meet a client. The camera footage of her walking out of the hotel was the last time she's ever been seen. 
When family members hadn't heard from her in a couple days, they reported her missing. Again, at the time, police wanted to write these women off as throwaways, estranged from their families, only caring about being in the street. But as we could see, this wasn't true. Megan called her daughter multiple times a day to talk to her and check in that she was okay. And for that to stop was concerning. On June 8, 2010, a missing persons report was filed with the Scarborough, Maine Police Department. The police department then contacted the Suffolk County Police to assist in finding Megan. I think she may have been the only one besides Shannon Gilbert that was reported missing in Suffolk County where they ended up being found. But it didn't help anyway. There were no leads until Megan's body was found on December 13, 2010 on the north side of Ocean Parkway near Gilgo Beach. She was found wrapped in a camouflage burlap bound by clear or white tape and had been strangled. Rex Huerman has been charged with her murder. She is believed to be the third victim of the Gilgo Four. Megan's pimp was arrested on federal charges of interstate trafficking of prostitutes on April 11, 2012, and was sentenced to three years in federal prison in January 2013 but he had been ruled out of her murder early on. And lastly, we have Amber Lynn Costello. Amber was 27 years old and was having a really rough time in life when she went missing. She was tiny at only 4 foot 11. I'm sure you're seeing a pattern here. Rex Huerman obviously liked these tiny petite girls. Many serial killers do. It is believed to be more because smaller victims are easier to control and dispose of, rather than just being a personal type for the killer. So Amber was originally from North Carolina and had lived in Florida for a few years. It's reported that she had been sexually abused by a neighbor when she was just six years old. It sounds like she had a chaotic, unstable home life. She had been married and divorced twice and moved to New York after her second marriage ended. Sadly, she was addicted to heroin. She was desperate to kick the habit and had completed a 28-day detox program not long before her disappearance, but she didn't have a healthy support system. She had a sister, Kimberly, but sadly, she was also caught up in the world of addiction and sex. She was living in a house in West Babylon with three roommates, one other female and two males. But they all had heroin habits, and Amber soon relapsed. She was doing sex work to support her and sometimes her roommate's habits. She also advertised on Craigslist and Backpage under the names Carolina or Mia. Her other female roommate was also a sex worker. The roommates had started running a scam where the girls would set up dates in the house. The clients would come over and pay the fee. But before any acts could take place, one of the men would burst in, pretending to be an irate boyfriend, scaring the customer into running out the door, minus the money he had already paid. Because of this, Amber had quite a few clients not too happy with her. On September 2, 2010, Amber received a call asking her to do a special overnight out call. The pay would be $1,500. That was a lot more than Amber was used to making. The man called a few more times that day, with the last call around 10.30 p.m. He said he was parked down the street and Amber left on foot, never to be seen again. She didn't have a cell phone on her because the roommates had been sharing the phone. Since she had a job booked for the night, she left the phone behind for the roommates to use. Sadly, no one ever even reported her missing. 
She was found December 13, 2010, on the north side of Ocean Parkway near Gilgo Beach. She was found wrapped in camouflage burlap, bound with clear or white tape, and had been strangled. She was the fourth and final victim of the Gilgo Four, and Rex Huerman has been charged with her murder. So those are the women behind the Gilgo Four. We wanted to talk a little bit about each victim because there's so much more than just a number or a nickname. For too long, they were just brushed aside for being sex workers. And then there was corruption and controversy in the police department that I feel led to roadblocks in solving the case. Even though there were some dedicated detectives that really did give their all back then, a lot of the higher-ups didn't. But the recent work has been phenomenal. I have to hand it to this task force. Within less than two months of it forming in January of 2022, they had their suspect. Then they just had to build a solid case. And I believe that they did. So let's talk about Rex Hureman. Like we said earlier, Rex is a 59-year-old architect from Long Island. Authorities arrested him Thursday night, July 13th, near his office on 5th Avenue in New York City. He grew up on Long Island, and he lived in the same house in Massapequa Park his whole life. He had a wife who is his second wife and two children. His company's name is RH Consultants and Associates. His 26-year-old daughter works there with him. Poor girl. Rex works on construction and renovation projects in New York City, and he also does consulting work. His website lists New York clients, such as Catholic Charities and American Airlines. His website also claims that he's worked with Target, Nike, Foot Locker, and other big brand names. So it sounds like he was pretty successful. I mean, Fifth Avenue addresses don't come cheap. But the house he lived in doesn't match. It's a small, rundown, single-story house with faded red paint. It was his parents' home and he grew up there. Records show he bought it from his mother for under $200,000 in 1994. There was vegetation growing on the roof, and it's just in general disrepair. Neighbors describe it as a dump, and I cannot say that I disagree. All the other houses in the village are neat and well-kept. It's an upper-middle-class area, And if you put a picture up of this neighborhood and ask the question, which one doesn't belong, every single person would choose his house. Rex seems like a bit of a chimera. He definitely had more than one side. Some people say that he was a nice guy, but others say that you don't want to meet him on a bad day. Something I found telling was that neighbors said that they wouldn't let their kids trick-or-treat at that house on Halloween. But one neighbor said that he was curious what the house looked like inside, so he brought his kids to the door on Halloween. And to his surprise, Rex answered and gave plastic pumpkins out filled with candy. But when he got home, his wife made him throw out all the candy. (laughs) So that tells you something. A Mr. Furchaw said that he's had several not-so-nice run-ins with Rex. One day, Rex was cutting wood in his front yard, when Mr. Furchaw greeted him. Rex just glared straight at him while continuing to chop away. And that's chilling when you think about it. 
Yeah, that's creepy. <laughs> yeah. The neighbor that brought his kids trick-or-treating there has a friend that lives behind Rex. And sometimes he would visit his buddy and drink a few beers in the backyard. Looking at the dilapidated Hurman house, they made the comment, he probably has bodies in there. So he was definitely giving off some serial killer vibes. But you never take that kind of thing seriously. But that really is crazy, though. Yeah. Like, I feel like we've all made jokes like, oh, yeah, he probably has dead bodies in his basement. Like, one of those creepy neighbors. I've definitely had a few neighbors that I said that about, but you don't think it's real. Yeah, imagine the police, like, swarming your neighborhood and you find out that that was all true. I know. He also had an incident where he went into Whole Foods and stole fruit. I am not joking. He started stuffing his pockets with the free clementines that they put out for kids. And when an employee told him that he had to stop, he started yelling and he had to be escorted out. And stealing just for the sake of stealing, that's another very antisocial act. So he does fit the profile, just with the little that we know so far. Actor Billy Baldwin expressed shock at the arrest, because Rex had been a high school classmate of his. Other people just described him as being quiet and keeping to himself, and some clients he worked with had nothing but nice things to say about him. So obviously he could turn it on and off, like so many serial killers before him that lived double lives. John Wayne Gacy comes to mind. Rex was arraigned in court on Friday the 14th on six murder charges. Three charges of first-degree murder and three charges of second-degree murder. He pled not guilty to all the charges, and the judge ordered him to be held without bond. His attorney, Michael Brown, said that Rex denied the charges and had told him, quote, I didn't do this. His wife, Asa Ellerup, is originally from Iceland. She attended the court hearing, telling the press, Please leave me alone. I will not be saying anything. And you can't blame the poor woman. I'm sure she's completely shocked. And I feel terrible for her and his kids. And all of his family. I can't even imagine what they're going through, and they have a lot of evidence against him. I mean, I know he's innocent until proven guilty, but in my opinion, this is the guy. The first way that they connected him was that he owned a dark-colored first-generation Chevrolet Avalanche. A truck like that was seen by a witness to the disappearance of Amber Costello. It was actually her roommate that was running the scams on the Johns back then. And Old Rex was actually one of the men that got caught up on that scam that the roommates were running. The roommate described the guy as being a big guy, white with dark hair, six foot four or five. And he described him as looking like an ogre. And I'm sorry, but the word ogre fits. So when Rex was confronted at the house, he ran out of the house and got into a dark Chevy Avalanche that he had parked in the driveway. He later texted Amber to the effect that what happened was not nice, and that she'd need to give him credit for the next time. And a truck with that same description passed by the house in the opposite direction of where Amber walked when she left that last time. 
I think that he told her to meet him down the street to avoid being connected to the guy that got scammed the night before. But he stupidly passed back by the house after picking her up. And one of the roommates saw her. Rex's Chevy Avalanche has since been tracked down in South Carolina, and it's being processed and investigated. Rex used burner phones to contact all the victims. He bought a new one with each victim and then got rid of it after the murder. So he was organized and had a plan. And as we all know, burner phones are much harder to track. But it's not impossible. Once law enforcement narrowed things down, they used software to map out numbers that had contacted friends and family and numbers that were traveling with Rex's known cell phone. On the dates of the murders, the burner phones and the victim phones were traveling together. They were later able to match up Rex's credit cards to prove that he was in these same areas where the phones were located at the same times. They had to do it that way because some of the cell phone records from Rex's regular phone weren't available anymore. The calls made to Melissa Bartholomew's sister were all made very close to his offices. And the calls to her sister stopped for a bit when it's known that Rex traveled out of the country to Iceland. And when he returned to New York, they started back up. And Rex was still going strong with his interest in sex workers till the day he was arrested. He used Tinder under an alias to meet women for hookups. He had more than one email account under fake names. An email account associated with one of the burner phones connected to Rex was used to search for sex workers, torture-related pornography, and worst of all, child pornography. Ew. The search terms he used are horrific. And we're not going to list them here. They're online in the charging documents for anybody that wants to look them up. They're just too graphic and disgusting. And with what this man was looking up, I'm sorry, but there's no way that he stopped 12 years ago. I'm sure they're looking for more victims. That same email account searched for serial killers in the investigation into Melissa, Megan, Amber, and Maureen. So he kept up with the investigation, and he was very interested in any new information law enforcement may have had. He specifically researched the new task force when it was announced that it was formed. Knowing that he was watching was a big reason why they kept so many details of the investigation secret. But hearing about the task force and that cell phone data was being looked into must have had him shaking in his boots. Or loafers, if that's what he wears. <laughs> Sorry, I had to put that. <laughs> uh, I love it. From his searches, authorities could tell that he was also keeping tabs on other sex workers, the victim's family members, and even the children of the victims. He was even searching for the current locations of family members. Finding that out had to totally re-victimize the families. In the end, that's why they acted now to arrest him. Although they had been keeping him under close surveillance, they feared that he could kill again. And a woman came out saying that on July 3rd, Rex was stalking her in Hyde Park near Massapequa. He creeped her out so much that she filed a police report. 
Serial killers go through a cycle of contemplating, planning, and then acting out their crimes, followed by a cool-down period. And I think that there were things that police saw that made them think that he was ramping up for another attack. A huge piece of evidence that was an aha moment for me was the fact that during all three murders he's charged with, his wife and kids were out of town. They were able to confirm that through his wife's cell phone records. When Melissa went missing, they were in Iceland. They were visiting Maryland when Megan went missing, and in New Jersey when Amber last walked out her door. Like we mentioned earlier in Maureen's case, they were unable to get the cell phone records for those dates because of the time that had passed. But who knows, maybe his wife or the kids will end up cooperating down the road, or they can verify their whereabouts for July of 2007 some other way. They're definitely not done with the investigation. It sounds like they moved in more quickly than they had wanted to because of public safety. I think some of the most damning evidence is the hairs that were found on the victims. Female hairs found on Maureen, Melissa, and Amber were linked to Rex's wife. I think because this poor woman was traveling, Rex brought these girls back to his house, where I don't even want to imagine what he did to them. He then had time to clean up and dump the bodies before his family came home. Sick. The last nail in his coffin is at the bottom of a burlap sack Megan was wrapped in. Police found a single male hair, and it was a match to our buddy Rex. All the hairs had been degraded because of being in the elements so long. In 2011 and 12, they couldn't extract DNA from them. But in 2020, with advances in the technology, they developed the male profile from the hair found with Megan. But it wasn't a match in CODIS. But once they zeroed in on Rex, they staked out his office and collected his DNA from a piece of pizza crust from inside a pizza box that they watched him throw away. They also collected DNA from Rex's wife from bottles thrown in the garbage at their home. They used those to compare with the other hairs and evidence, and they matched his wife. These most recent DNA test results that linked the hairs to Rex and his wife just came back from the lab on July 12th, the day before Rex's arrest. So I think that they were really getting nervous that he was going to hurt somewhere else, but they needed the DNA to get the indictment. And as soon as it came back, bam, they went and arrested him. We'll put a link in the show notes to the 32-page affidavit if anybody wants to read the details. Some of the cell phone data gets a little convoluted to explain in a podcast. And the Google searches are just too horrible to read out loud. Police Commissioner Rodney Harrison made the statement that Rex Hureman is a demon that walks among us, a predator that ruined families, and that's so true. In doing what he did, he ruined his own family too. I can only hope that these four families can rest a little easier knowing that their loved one's killer is behind bars. We started writing this episode the minute that they announced the arrest of Rex Hureman. Since then, there's been an avalanche of things happening. Police got search warrants for his Manhattan office. Two separate storage spaces linked to Rex were found in Amityville. 
Comments were made saying that police were looking for trophies or body parts, and vehicles from the county medical examiner's office were present at those locations. Whether that's protocol or if they actually found things that would call for the medical examiner being there remains to be seen. While searching his cluttered house, a disturbing piece of artwork picturing a girl with a bruised face was removed. Also, a collection of old Playboy and other magazines. At one point, a toolbox or small trunk of some kind was brought up from the basement, and all the technicians and law enforcement seemed to stop what they were doing to look inside and photograph it. But what was in there is anyone's guess. I just thought that that was interesting. They also removed a four-foot doll that was encased in a glass case with wooden trimmings on it. And some people say that it's a traditional Icelandic doll, so it could belong to his wife or daughter. But looking at the Annabelle movies, that was just really creepy. Or like Robert the Doll. Did you see Robert the Doll in Las Vegas? Yeah. When I went to Zach Bagans? Yeah. I saw Robert. But yeah, with everything else this guy has done, a creepy doll being removed from his house obviously is going to be in the news. Maybe it's nothing, but still eerie. It is, and this guy looks like he was a semi-hoarder, but definitely a total pack rat, and he seemed like he kept everything old. He lived in the same house that he grew up in. He never did any remodeling to it, at least from the outside where we could see. And from reports, he had this creepy basement. And also, there was a room in his basement that he says was for his guns, but he would not let anybody into this room. Yeah, with how much old stuff he has, they're really going to have to go through it all to see if any of it really are trophies from the victims. Maybe he held on to some of their jewelry or who knows what. I know, like, I saw, like, drones going over his house, and just looking at the property, there's a lot to go through. Oh, there is, and... And then the brother's property. Mm Mm-hmm. Which literally looks like a junkyard. What's also been reported is that he had over 90 permits for guns, but it's said that they removed between 200 and 300 guns from his house from that downstairs room that has been described by some as a vault. Hmm. Like, was this room locked up? Like, only he was allowed to go in there? Well, there was a interior decorator that worked with him, supposedly in 2006, that was supposed to remodel the kitchen, but she was also doing all measurements of the entire house. And she said he got really weird when she went to go measure that room and he would not let her in there. And he just got really, really strange. He gave the excuse that his guns were in there, but... Still weird. Yeah, that's something that's been giving me, like, nightmares and chills thinking about. I feel like there's something with that room. Who knows? Maybe that's where he took the girls to kill them? It's supposedly a 12 by 15 foot room. That's about the size of my bedroom. So, it's not a tiny room. Yeah, It's just, like, weird that he wouldn't let her in there just because there's guns. Like, okay, she can still measure the room with there being guns in there. Exactly. I wouldn't be surprised if it comes out in the end that that was his private space that nobody could go in. Yeah. 
Like, probably not even his wife. Yeah. Well, they have the two kids, their daughter and then the adult son who's disabled. And people in the neighborhood say that if they would see her, the daughter, and the son in, like, area grocery stores and stuff like that, but they were always very quiet and the wife always seemed depressed and I don't know. It just sounds like wasn't a good marriage and she didn't seem like she was very happy. Yeah. The last thing that I think we should talk about is the fact that where they found the Chevy Avalanche that was involved with the murders was in South Carolina at his brother's property. So do you want to talk about that a little bit? Like the condition of his brother's property? Yeah, they were flying drones over this brother's property. And the best way I could describe it on a podcast is it looks like a junkyard. A complete junkyard. There's stuff everywhere. And if you go on Google Maps and do the street view of the property, it's just very creepy looking. It's a wooden gate around the driveway to this property. And a sign says, keep out. It says, no warrant, no entry. Yeah. Yes, that's what it says. It just looks so creepy. Like, what do you have to hide that bad? And you can look up the drone footage of above it. People were zooming in and saying they could see certain things, but you can't. It just looks like a bunch of junk. Yeah, well, in 2021, Rex bought land right there near his brother, $154,000 in mm-hmm. its acreage. Supposedly, that that's where he was going to go retire to. And neighbors say that the brother is crazy. They just described him as a total nutcase that they hear guns firing in the middle Mm -hmm. of the night on the property, heavy machinery. So I feel like they're going to have to do some major excavation at those properties down there, probably. Yeah, and this brother was also arrested back in the day for killing a cop by drunk driving. He crashed into him and killed this cop. Yeah, that actually took place right near where Rex's house is in Massapequa. It wasn't that far from there. Wow. So, yeah, the neighbors down there, they kind of describe the guy as being like one of those crazy apocalypse hoarder type people. Yeah, have a whole cache of guns and ammunition from when the government is going to come and take over, and I don't know. Yeah, so clearly crazy runs in this family, strongly. Yeah, they're going to have to do a lot of investigation into the brother, too. Yeah, and definitely going through his property and seeing if there's anything also there that's any damning evidence, but... Yeah, so... One thing that I was really, really happy to hear was that Asa Ellerup, Rex's wife of 27 years, filed for divorce six days after his arrest. And police said that the family's absolutely horrified and disgusted by the evidence. And I really hope people aren't too hard on them. I'm sure they had nothing to do with anything, and they had no idea, and they just have to be in complete shock and their whole entire world is turned completely upside down, and they're the enemy, and they shouldn't be like that. They have nothing to do with it. Definitely not. I don't think the wife or the daughter, the son, anyone had any idea what was going on. And like we said before, they proved that during the times he was killing, they weren't there. They were gone. 
So I truly think he probably paid for them to go on vacation, shooed them away, so he could do this stuff in peace without them around. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure over the next days, all new articles are coming out every single day. People are coming out of the woodwork. I'm not going to include every little person that had said this and said that because it hasn't been vetted or verified. But I'm sure over the next days, weeks, months, we're going to be hearing more and more information come out. And the police in many states are going back over cases of missing or murdered in their states to see if any can be linked to Rex. The 2006 eastbound strangler case in Atlantic City is one of the ones being looked into. And in that one, four women were found strangled and dumped in a row in a drainage ditch behind a motel. And Las Vegas police are also taking a hard look at their backlogs because Rex owned properties out there. He had owned two different timeshare properties. They sold one, but they still owned another one. So I'm sure that there's going to be much more dug up about him, but we're most likely going to have to wait until any more arrests or the trials for that information. So that's pretty much the update on Lisk for now. We now know the Lisk responsible for at least four of these horrific murders is in custody, and I couldn't be any happier. I'm so impressed with that task force. They really did an awesome job. And I do admit that over the years I had lost hope, but now I'm confident that they're going to dive back in and they're going to get justice for the rest of the victims. We're going to end it here for now, and we will give you any more updates as they come along. We'll be back to our regularly scheduled programming next week. Thanks for listening, guys. Yeah, thanks for joining us for this update and overview of the Long Island serial killer case. We'll try to do periodic updates when anything important happens. We're only a two-woman show and do all of our own editing and recording and research, so we worked really hard to get this out as quick as possible for you guys. We hope to have you back next week for another case that will ruin your day. Keep talking about these cases, keep the victims' names alive, and stay safe out there. For all the pictures related to this case, you can find us at Web of Wicked on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. And like we said before, we're working on getting a YouTube up and going. If you have a case that you want us to cover, you can email us at webofwicked at gmail.com. And be sure to rate and review our podcasts on any platform you're listening on. It really helps us out a ton. Thanks for your support. Until next Wednesday. Bye. Bye.